portion of God's Word that we'll focus our attention on for a few minutes this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our risen redeemer. Amen. Once upon a time, there were three little pigs and the big bad wolf. The three pigs were brothers. And they lived together in the city, and one day they decided that they'd like to move to the country. And there was this beautiful stretch of land over by the deep, dark forest. And there were three lots for three homes. And so these three brothers bought that land, and they set out to build their homes. Now, the oldest brother, he was a wise one, an experienced one. He wasn't afraid of of good, hard work. And he knew that the big, bad wolf lived in those deep, dark woods. And so he thought through his options. And he decided that the best course of action would be to spend a little more money on bricks and to put a little more time and energy into building his house. And so that's what he did. He built a house out of bricks. The second pig, the middle brother, it's not that he was afraid of hard work, but he thought bricks were overkill. And they were right by the woods. There were plenty of sticks, and he figured, I can make a, a, very, a very strong house out of sticks. It won't cost that much either, because I can get my own materials from my own backyard. And so that's what he did. He, he built himself a house made of sticks. The youngest brother, he, he wasn't so wise He was pretty naive. Farmer across the street had plenty of hay, and it was real inexpensive. And he figured I could get some in bales and use those to build a foundation. I could maybe pile the rest of it up and build myself a a house of hay. It'll be just fine. And so that's what he did. He, He built himself a house out of hay. Well, you know how the rest of the story goes, right? One day the big bad wolf came out of those deep dark woods, and he came up to that house where that 
that youngest pig was. And he said, little pig, little pig, let me come in. And that little pig said, not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. And so that big bad wolf, he huffed and he puffed and he blew that house right down. And that little brother ran to the house of his older brother, the one who built the house out of sticks. And the same thing happened there, right? He huffed and he puffed and he blew that house down, no problem. And those two little pigs, they ran to the house of their big brother where they were welcomed with open arms. Foolish though they were. That older brother let him right in, kept him safe. And depending on how your version of the story ends, either that big bad wolf got burned by the fire in the fireplace or maybe there was a pot of boiling water over the fire or maybe he just ran away into the woods if you like a more gentle version. What's the moral of the story? Who do you focus on? Who do you want to be like? Of course, no one wants to be the big bad wolf because he's the bully, and we all know bullying is bad. We, we shouldn't bully people. We shouldn't bully those who are weaker than we are. You look at the younger brother and you say, well, we don't want to be like him because he was foolish and lazy. We don't want to be like the middle brother either because he took shortcuts and didn't work out so well for him. We want to be like the older brother, right? The one who was wise and and hardworking, but not only smart and hardworking, but also willing to care for his foolish little ones, his foolish younger brothers. He, He didn't stick it to them. He didn't mock them. He just lovingly let them in and took care of them. The Bible is more a library than a storybook. It's more a a, a library full of multi-chapter books than a a long chapter book. And yet, although the Bible is made up of many different books, there's one main story, one main narrative that runs through the whole thing. And as you might remember from different Bible studies, it's not chronological. You, You can't just read it from cover to cover and expect to get it all in order. But if you do your homework, you can read it in chronological order. And just like any big story, there's characters. You probably know a bunch of their names, right? Adam, Noah, Abram, Abraham, Moses, David, Daniel, and all the prophets. If we're not careful, it's easy for us to look at the characters in the Bible and to see examples of Characters who do things the right way and characters who do things the wrong way. It's easy for us to look at examples of Abram and his nephew Lot and say, now here, here's an example of a kind elder showing love to his seemingly foolish nephew. Abram could have just said, all right, Lot, there's not enough land here for for both of us. I'm going to go over here, you go over there. And what would Lot have had to say? Abram could have said, are you sure you want to go live there? There's some wicked people down there. He could have said, Lot, let me tell you what to do. But he didn't. He said, I'll go there if you go here, and if you go there, I'll go here. You pick. We could look at Lot and we could say, well, he could have respected his elders more. He could have said, 
Uncle, you've always treated me fairly, and, and I'm blessed by God beyond wild, my wildest dreams, and you, you take the best land, and I'll take the land over here, and if it doesn't go so well for me, then I know you'll help me if I need it. We could pick apart these two men. We could find pros and cons, maybe on either side, and we could say this is how you should do it and this is how you shouldn't do it. This would be a good way and this would be a bad way. It's countless quote-unquote morals that can be found even in biblical narratives. But the Christian doesn't look for the moral of the story. The Christian doesn't look at what this human did for that human or, or what this human did for God. The Christian sees what God did for the humans. Jesus begins the text that we looked at today with a little three-letter word that you might look right past, but you you shouldn't. F-O-R, for. It tells us right away we got to look at the verses ahead because the point that Jesus is making is based on what he had just said. So let me read you the three verses preceding our text. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So before our text, Jesus makes the point clear that Jesus did not come to remove God's laws. It was impossible for him to do so. God is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly just. For him to remove his law would have been for God to say, oops, I made a mistake. Oops, I I made the the rules too hard. They're clearly failing, stumbling all over themselves. They're they're unable to do do these laws. I got to get rid of them so they can be with me. Nope, not an option, Jesus says. Can't be done. The law will not be removed. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. If you want to be in God's presence, you have to be perfectly righteous. You have to perfectly obey the law in every facet, every single moment of your life. And that's what Jesus begins teaching in our text when he says, For for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe for you and me, if we're reading the Old Testament stories that we're most familiar with, maybe we look at Abram and say, here's here's a good example. Here's a, a fine example of a faithful man. For the people listening to Jesus, they had a lot of examples right in front of them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were striving every single day to keep God's laws perfectly. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness is way better than theirs, far surpassing theirs, you have no chance at getting into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, 
is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The law of God is not the product of a fairy tale. It's not a set of morals from biblical narrative. It is the absolute standard that God expects you and me to live by if we are to get into heaven. And here Jesus makes it clear, outward obedience doesn't cut it. You're all remembering the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. How do I know that? You're here. Outward obedience doesn't cut it. What's in the heart? Are you here willingly? (laughs) Or did someone drag you here? Is this your attitude every day? (laughs) Is there a desire to be in God's word every single moment of your life? Not that you have to be in God's word every single moment of your life. But is God's word the most valuable thing you have? Or are there other things that are sometimes more precious to you, more valuable to you than the word of God? If anything has ever been more precious to you than God's own word, then this outward obedience means nothing. You haven't stuck a knife in your neighbor's chest. Good for you. Have you ever hated Have you ever become angry? You're a murderer. So am I. You get Jesus' point that the law is not an outward thing that you could strive to obey. It's inward too. It's, It's a spiritual thing. It's a condition of the heart thing. And it's an every moment of every day for your whole life thing. What did the psalm writer say again? No one living is righteous before you. Not one. Unless your righteousness surpasses those of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you surely will not enter the kingdom of God. This is why it's so important for us to remember every single day of our life that Jesus did not come to get rid of the law. The law is necessary. It's there to drive us to our knees, to remind us that we are not good enough, that we are not righteous enough, that no model can give us the right way to earn God's favor. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. That the God who expects you and I to obey this impossibly high standard became one of us, became a real human, so that all these laws would apply to him and then he fulfilled them. He completed them. And again, that's not some kind of outward completion. It's perfect outward, perfect inward. Every moment of every single day of Jesus' life, he was perfectly righteous. He never once failed. That right there is a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That is a perfect righteousness. And it's that righteousness that was laid down as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And I hope that's something that that doesn't go in one ear and out the other because you've heard it so many times. Remember what that word atoning means? 
in at one ing sacrifice? The lack of righteousness in us all the way back to Adam. Remember our hymn of the day, all mankind fell in Adam's fall. All the way back. Our sins have separated us from God. And Jesus' perfect sacrifice made us at one with him. It's this atoning, at-oneing sacrifice. Accepted by God for the sins of the whole world. Definitely for yours. Definitely for mine. So all the times that you failed to obey God's laws, whether it was outwardly or inwardly, those sins have been removed. And now, just like with Abraham... Through faith in God's Son, for him it was looking ahead to the promise of the Messiah, for us it's looking back. Through faith in God's Son, Jesus' righteousness, his perfect law obedience, both outward and inward, is given to you. What does God see when he looks at you and looks at me? He sees people whose righteousness far surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because through faith in your Savior, Jesus, your failures, my failures, your lack of righteousness, my lack of righteousness has been wiped away and replaced by Jesus' perfection. When you look at Abram, what do you see? As a Christian, you see someone Blessed by God. You see someone who was given great wealth as a blessing from God to him. You see someone who had done nothing to earn or deserve God's love. You see someone who's a sinner just like you, who made mistakes, who failed. You see someone who was persuaded by God that his God has the power to do everything he promises. You see someone who has faith. Not because he decided to have faith, not because he worked at it, but because God convinced him that he's a God who's worth trusting. Even the faith in Abram, even the faith in you and in me is a gift from God to us. And so as we read God's word, we avoid the temptation to focus on what the human does for the human or what the human does for God. As Christians, we, we, we look at what God is doing for the humans in every narrative, on every page. And you know what happens? As we focus on what God is doing for the humans, we're constantly being reminded of what God has done for us. And then as we see the humans behaving one way or the other, whether they're showing fruits of faith living a God-pleasing life or showing, sadly, fruits of unbelief, living a life that does not make sense in light of what God has done for them. We get help in assessing our own life. As we look at the things that we do or don't do, do they follow or not follow? Do they follow what God has done for you or do they not follow what God has done for you? We want to be aware of those fruits. We want to know, am I bearing fruit? Am I doing for others, doing for God as he would expect of me? Or am I not? If not, we need to go back to the cross where we are reminded of Jesus' atoning sacrifice all over again and united with him in baptism, both in his death and and resurrection, so that we can go live a new and and God-pleasing life 
where we serve neighbors and, and serve God, not to earn his favor, but because we already have it. That's the best way for us to say thank you to the God who shows us grace. Lord's blessings to you as you spend time in God's word this week. As you continue to return to Mount Olive to spend time in God's word, let's continue focusing on what God has done for us. Amen.